going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23. So whenever we come to 1 Samuel 23, we find David, and we find him in like, man, we find him in a pretty tough spot. See, David has been forced to flee his home in the city that he lives in. He actually had to flee by night with the help of his wife because King Saul is looking to kill him. And because Saul is after him, he has been living on the run. He's been living in the wilderness with these men. And, um, man, it's not like he's just been hiding out and doing nothing. We see that he has had to endure many things. One thing that he had to endure is he had to receive this news that this priest who had helped him, who had given him holy bread to eat, who had given him a sword to protect himself, this priest who had just tried to like just come alongside and, and help him, that that man actually, along with most of his family, was slaughtered for that. And that David has also had to shoulder that burden. He's had to just deal with like all the emotions and all the things that would come along with that. Um, he has had to be estranged from his family. He has even had to act like a crazy person and try to hide in the city of his enemy. And this isn't all the things that he's had to be to deal with, but like these handful of things alone, it's like, huh, this does not sound like a good spot for him to be in. Despite all this, though, as we've worked through and seen the, this season in David's life, we have seen that God has remained faithful to him and that he has shown him favor in different ways. And today, as we look at this chapter, we'll see that God actually continues to do the same thing. And as we look at this story in the life of David, here's what I'd like us to think about. It's what I'd really like us to consider. That fear, whenever it's properly placed, is actually a good thing for us. That's kind of going to be like the driving idea behind what we talk about today. As we do that, we're going to talk about two points, the fear of men and the providence of God. We're going to read all of chapter 23 just because, like, it's a story, it's a narrative. It is a long one, so y'all can remain seated. But if you would just follow along with me as I read, and forgive me for the names that I butcher. Here we go, verse 1. It says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me to my, and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. 
Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. No one see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he's very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information, and then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I'll search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on the one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore the place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds in Gaida. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God. And he has given them to us because he loves us, and they are true. So I think that most of us, or if we're honest, probably all of us would say that at some point in our lives, there has been a person that we were scared of. And that person may change with different seasons of life, but we've all had them. As I look back on the season of life in my uh, second grade, when I was in second grade, I remember there was someone that I was very definitively afraid of. And that was my peewee football coach, Coach Washburn. I was afraid of him because of the way he looked and the way he talked. Like, and remember, I was in second grade, so this is the way I remember it, but I'm sure it was exactly right. But like whenever he talked, like I remember him having like a deep, like loud voice, kind of like just kind of seemed to carry on forever. I remember him being like a big dude, like broad shoulders. He had a flat top haircut and a cop mustache. He kind of looked like an older Dick Buckus, which he probably would not appreciate if I said that, but he's not here, so there you go. And I, uh, part of the reason I was scared, not just because of the way he talked, not just because of the way he looked, because like the vibe he put off, he put off this vibe that he was like a no-nonsense, be-in-your-place-and-do-your-job kind of guy. And for me, as a second grader, not the sharpest kid you've ever met, never played football before, like most of the time I'm like, I'm not sure exactly where my place is or what exactly my job is supposed to be. 
right? Like, it, it was just a bad combination for me. And again, like, I realized through the eyes of a seven-year-old. But even years later when I saw a washroom, I think, it's, I think I was fairly accurate. I was scared that in front of the other kids, like, that he might yell at me. I was scared that if I was out of place or didn't do my job right, he'd rough me up a little bit. Now, the second one probably wasn't true. The first one might have been, though I probably could have used both. But look, I was scared of my coach in the second grade for all these different reasons, right? And man, I really wish I could tell you it's like, and that was the last time and it's never happened again. But that's just not true. In my life, I found new people to be scared of. I even found new reasons to be scared of them. And I bet in your life it's the same way, isn't it? I bet when you were a kid there was someone you were scared of. And I bet through every season of your life you could look back and there has been someone. You know, when we look at our text, we see that David, that his men, that the residents of this town called Keilah and the people in the area of Ziph, that they were all scared of the same thing that you and I struggled with. They were all scared of men. They were all scared of other people. As this chapter opens, it opens with David receiving news that the Philistines, who's like the main enemy of Israel at this time, that they are attacking and they're robbing this city. When he hears this news, what does he do? He goes and asks God, he's like, hey, what am I supposed to do? Like, should I go down and attack them? And God's like, yes, go and attack them, go and save the city. So it seems like straightforward enough, right? Like, asked, answered, action should follow. But whenever David goes to tell his men, we see his men confess something. They confess, man, they're afraid. Now, what are they afraid of? It doesn't tell us exactly. Like, it doesn't tell us, like, if they're afraid to fight the Philistines. It doesn't tell us if, like, they're afraid that Saul will discover them, like, whenever they come out of hiding. But regardless of exactly what they're afraid of, it seems fair to say that they were afraid of what would happen with in relation to other people. But before we pile on David's men for their fears, let's consider the rest of the people in this chapter. But let's think about David. What does he do? He inquires of God. He gets his answer. But then whenever he goes to tell his men, he receives pushback. And instead of standing with confidence, they're like, no, this is what God has declared. Instead of pointing them to God and the assurance that they can have in him and pointing them to like, look at all the ways that he has cared for us already. Surely he will care for us now too. Instead of doing any of those things, it's like he shrinks back. He goes back to God. You know what question he essentially asks? Hey man, are you sure? I know you said this. Do you want like a second chance at that? You know, like whenever you're a kid, they're like, you ask them, you know, they're lying. It's like, you want to try that one again? It seems like this is what he's doing, right? It's like, God, are you sure about this one? I know you said this, but So why would he do that? The same reason that his men gave him in verse 3. Fear of other people. How about the people in the city of Keilah? Like David and his soldiers eventually show up. They defeat the Philistines, right? Like they free this city. They rescue them. And then we see in verses 9 to 12. Like if if Saul would have shown up, what would they have done? They would have given those dudes up for fear of Saul. And the last group, the people of Ziph, in verses 19 and 20, we see this group 
go to Saul and be like, hey, you know that dude you're looking for? He's over here. They're like the worst kind of friend, right? And why would they do that? Because they're scared. We see in all these people a common fear, that they're scared of other people. You could even say more specifically, like, what kind of relationships are they showing fear in? Like, think about, think about David's men. We could say that they have, like, a general, like, fear of the world, just like a general fear of people. And David, we could say that he had a fear of people that he knew personally, right? Like, he had relationship with this man, and he had fear of them, what they might think of him. And there is also fear of those who are in authority. Think about the people of Keilah and the people of Ziph. Who are they afraid of? They're afraid of Saul. They're afraid of someone who has authority over them and what that authority figure might do. And in all of these ways, all these different relationships, in all of these, man, we struggle with these relationships and this fear in these relationships as well. I mean, like, haven't there been times when, like, you are, like, you just fear the world. Like, you just fear people in general. Because you, probably, like I, you want to be thought of as a nice person, as acceptable and sensible. Like, even with people that you don't have a close personal relationship with, you want their perception of you to be one that they're okay with, right? You want their perception of you to be, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm accept I would be accepting of that person if I knew them. We also fear those people that we have personal relationship with and that we really want to like us. What did David do whenever his men pushed back? And it doesn't seem like he did anything. Man, that oftentimes describes me. Does that describe you sometimes too? Like, we all have personal relationships with people. We all have relationships with people that are like, man, I just want you to like me. And anyone who says they don't care, they are lying. They're lying to themselves and they're lying to you. Everybody wants people to like them. And you know, I've been in conversations with people, people that I have relationships with, that I've put time in with to get to know. And in conversations, they've expressed their views on religion or marriage or money or politics, the church, God, abortion, marriage, sexuality, how we should deal with others, a whole plethora of other things, right? And they've expressed views that are like adamantly opposed to what God has said in Scripture. So often what I've done? Not a thing. I have kept my mouth shut. You know why? I want you to like me. I don't want you to think less of me. I don't want you to argue with me. I don't want you to talk bad about me behind my back. I did what David did. I do what David did. I keep silent for fear of what men might think or say about me. I've kept silence. I'm like, well, this will make them like me better. And it might. It probably does. But does it really matter? And if I don't tell them what I actually think, and they don't really know me and what I think, they don't really know me anyway. Like, they like a perception of me, not the real me. Is it really worth it? Would it not be better to just in conversation, I mean, we're talking about people we have a relationship with. Would it not be better to be like, yeah, I fall out somewhere different. This is what I think, and this is why. 
just believe this is what God has said. And these are the reasons why I think it would be better. We're not talking about people you meet on the street. We're talking about people that you know and have relationship with. You know, as I read, as I read this chapter, and I think about this idea of fearing men, whenever I first did, I was like, what, are, what does the Bible say about it? And I began to look up, what does the Bible say when it talks about the fear of men? Psalm 27 says this, says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's them that stumble and fall. Psalm 118 says, If the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look and triumph on those who hate me. Because it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And last, Isaiah 51. Here's what God says. He says, I, I am he that comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies or the son of man who is like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker? The Lord stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the days because of the, because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy you. Whenever I read these verses, I'm reminded, I'm like, I shouldn't have fear of men. I shouldn't have fear of other people because of who I belong to. So I ask myself, I'm like, okay, you shouldn't, but you do. Why do you? And I think the answer is this. I have misplaced fear. Do you? The Bible talks about fearing the Lord, and it says that it's a good thing. Like Proverbs says, that's where knowledge begins. But I think oftentimes whenever we think about fear of the Lord, we don't, we don't have the full picture of it. We don't think about it in the full way, the way it's supposed to be. Because a healthy fear of the Lord, it does entail fear like I had for my second grade football coach, right? Like, yeah, I can crush me. Right, like there is an aspect of fear of the Lord, like that's a part of it. But that's not the whole picture. It's much more than that. Because a proper fear of the Lord, you know what it's centered on? Reverence and awe. So like if you've ever stood at the edge of the ocean and looked out and realized like how vast it is. Or if you've ever stood at the top of a mountain and looked out and realized like, even in your eyesight, like how many miles of how vast the area is that you can see. And if you've ever done those things and realized how small you feel in comparison, then you know in, a st in the smallest of ways what true awe is. I think oftentimes whenever we think about God, we don't think of him fully. We think of him as like, nice, soft, happy daddy God just wants to pass you on the head and give you everything you want. And look, there's an aspect where God is tender, right? Like in Jesus, we see him like putting kids on his knee and telling the disciples, get out of the freaking way and let those kids come over here. Not in those exact words, sorry. But like, right, like there is an aspect where that, where that is God, like he is tender and loving and he is a father who is tender with his small children. But if that's the only way we see him, then of course we don't fear him rightly. 
because we're not thinking about the other ways that the Bible talks about them. Like, think about the scene of God's throne room in Revelation 4. What is there? Lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. It was a description of Jesus in Revelation 19. Man, he's coming as a conquering warrior king. He's coming riding on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth. And so often we fail to consider scenes like this or even scenes like what it was like the day that Christ was crucified. As the sky is black and the earth shakes and the rocks split and the tombs come open. That's not Satan doing that stuff, y'all. Like That is God. And scenes like these are in the Bible because it is telling us, like, look, part of the fear of God should include things like this. We should keep these things in our mind when we think about a right fear of God. Because scenes like this should lead us, along with the writers of Scripture, to say, man, look at my God and who he is. Yes, he is soft and tender, but warrior king, robe dipped in blood, sword coming out of the mouth. Look at my God in comparison. Like, what can man ever do to me that really matters? Can they ridicule us? Yeah, man, absolutely. They ridiculed Jesus for his beliefs, too. Can people abandon you and never return? Oh, yeah, absolutely, they can. John 6 tells us that's what Jesus suffered. The apostles and early followers of Jesus, New Testament tells us they suffered the same. And countless believers throughout history have endured the same thing. But no matter what we face from people, man, we can move forward. We can go forward because God is with us and God is for us. As we have a right understanding, as we have a right fear of God, it will begin to take away the fear that we have of others. And begin to realign it to where it should be. So what does that look like? What does a right fear of God look like? What would it lead us to do? Man, it looks like what we find in Acts as the disciples and the followers of Jesus are threatened, beaten, imprisoned, and even face death for the sake of Christ. Yet they continue to stand firm in here in him. Why? They're like, yeah, that's gonna suck if I get fed to an animal, but I would way rather, would way rather have that than to have to face God and say, I recanted the faith because. They had a right fear of God because they were like, man, I know who he is. It looks like early century Christians who were fed to animals and used as human torches. It looks like Christians today in the Middle East who are being drugged out in the street and executed for the faith. Because they have a right fear of God. If you have a right fear of God, what will it look like for you? Probably not that, to be clear. Because we live in America. But it's going to come at a cost. Like having a right fear of God is going to come at a cost. And look, I'm not trying to shame you. Like, I'm not trying to shame you. Be like, look at all those people endured, and what do you have to? What What are you really going to face? Like, that's not. That's not the idea. Because suffering is relative, and God tells like your suffering matters. Whatever form of persecution you face, like it matters, and God knows and cares. But the question that we each are going to have to face is this. Just as countless other Christians have had to face and answer throughout the ages, is your fear in the right place? Is your fear aligned 
where it should be. Is your fear aligned on men? Or is your fear aligned on God? Will we struggle to keep it there? Yeah. Yeah, we will. But the more that we experience life free of the fear of other people, the more we experience a life where our fear is properly placed on God, the more freedom and confidence we will get to live in. So how do you gain this proper fear of God and proper view of others? Man, you got to work at it. There's not really a way around it. And part of the, the main way we do this is by reading, memorizing, and calling scriptures to mind. We read and memorize passages like Psalm 56.11. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We read and recite these to ourselves. And we ask God, hey, realign my fears. Take them off of people and put them on you. And we ask him to renew our desires. God, make my desires be for you and not the approval of people. And as we are consciously considering the things of God, as we are considering what does it look like to fear him and why should we fear him, we will begin to see him answering these things, showing us why we should. And part of the way he does this is by his works of providence. So do you ever have things happen in your life, like <laughs> things that you don't really hope for and things that you're like, yeah, I don't really know how this is going to get resolved. Don't really see an easy solution or I don't see a solution that I can orchestrate on my own. And then somehow something happens that you couldn't plan for, you couldn't orchestrate, and like it just gets resolved in a way you couldn't have imagined or planned for. This was on this podcast the other day. And this lady tells the story. She's like, so I was recently divorced. I'm raising my son on my own. She's like, and I hadn't been the primary breadwinner in my family. It's like, so I'm going out to work. But like, I'm not making a lot of money. Like, I just don't have a lot of, like, marketable skills. So she says one night, her son's in bed. She sits down at the kitchen table with all her bills in front of her. She's like, okay, I'm going to add it all up and see how much money I need. She writes that number down. She's like, okay, and this is how much money is in the bank. These two are not lining up. So she writes the number down. She's like, this is how much I'm short. She circles the number. And she's a believer. She's like, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, but I, I trust that you care for me and my son, that you will provide for us, but I'm not sure how you're going to do it. A few days later, she goes and checks her mail. And there's a letter from her friend. She opens up the letter, and there's a check to the cent for how much she had written down on that paper and circled. Now, should you expect this when you're short on bill money? Probably not exactly like that. Should you give in this way, like randomly writing checks and sending them to people? If, if you're sending one to me, then sure. But like on the whole, like this isn't normally how God is like going to provide for people. This isn't like the direction he normally gives us. But lay all that aside. Do you know what this is an example of? This is an example of the providence of God. 
providence. It's a word we don't use, but here's, here's how our catechism puts it. Providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. This is God preserving that woman and her son. And you know what? God is acting providentially all the time, and we're not even aware of it. 1 Samuel 23, God is acting providentially. As David and his men were in that city that they had rescued, after they had had victory, God tells David, like, yeah, you need to leave because those people will give you up to Saul. When the people of Ziph disclose David's location and Saul is bearing down like he is going to catch him, you know what God does? Providentially acts and sends the Philistines back into that area to raid, to divert Saul's attention again. You know what these are? Things that David could never have orchestrated or planned on his own. If we're looking, situations like this are around us all the time. And as we see and discover them, man, they should lead us to give God the praise for them. Because, man, I should stand in awe and wonder of him. Because only he could have orchestrated this. But we see the providence of God, not only in his deliverance from Saul, but also in God sending a friend. Jonathan, who is David's best friend, went out to go see him. This could have been dangerous for him, like Saul could have... Saul could have executed his own son. He's a crazy person. Like, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that this is what he would have done. But Jonathan knows that his friend needs him, and so he goes, and he tells him this, David, man, don't be afraid. Don't fear Saul. Trust in the promises of God. And this message from Jonathan, this visit from his friend, which it seems as though this is probably the last time they see each other face to face, it's yet another way that God is preserving David in this season. And this is a way that we see the providence of God in our lives as well. As we engage in Christian friendships and are reminded of the truth of God, he is, this is the way he is showing us providence. This is the way he is preserving us. Just like the lady in that story wrote that check, just as Jonathan went out to go see his friend, he's preserving them, and God preserves us in these ways too. So here's what I encourage you to do. Consider, who is that for you? Who is this, like, preserving agent for you? Who is encouraging you? Who is pointing you to get the truths of Scripture? Who is that person for you? And consider, who might you, who could you be that for? Who could you have conversations with? Who is somebody you just know, like, could use some encouragement, even in a season in life? Maybe preserving is not just conversations and prayers, text messages. Maybe preserving is like, hey man, I'm going to help you financially whether you want it or not. I don't know. But who could you be that preserving agent for? And as you see God's works of providence all around you, let it lead you to awe and wonder and praise of Him. Alright. Here's how we're going to conclude. This is totally free, but one of my favorite phrases, like whenever, uh, who said it? I don't know. Somebody smarter than me will remember. It's like, and then he got to the part we were all waiting for, the end. Here it is, all right? Here's how I want us to conclude.
quick look at verse 20. It says there, this is the people of Ziph talking to Saul. It says, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him, that is David, into the king's hand. Y'all, the world is telling us this. You, like Saul, you can have all that your heart desires. We'll make it possible for you to have. You want love, you want fame, you want power, you want acceptance, you want freedom. Whatever it is that you want, you can have it. We'll even help you get it. You don't need to fear God or do as he says. Just follow your hearts and the desires of them. Do you know what God says? He says, I have made you. And I have made you to desire and love and worship one thing. Me. God actually says, you know what? You can. You can have everything that your heart truly desires. You can have love and acceptance and freedom and security. But you can't have them in all these other places you look. You can have them in one place. You can have them only in me. Now, if you're not a Christian and, like, you look for them in every other place, hear the call to submit to Jesus, to find all the things that your hearts desire in him. Everything else will leave you wanting. Only in him, only in him can all the things that you want truly be found. And if you are a believer, my encouragement to you is to continually bring yourself before the majesty and the splendor of God. Stand in fear and awe of Him so that all of your life you might be brought into a right perspective with Him. For only there true and true joy and fulfillment can be found as we submit to God and stand in fear and awe of Him. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, this text that you have given us. Man, we pray that man, we pray that you would be at work realigning our fears. God, we all we all fear people in some way. Pray that you would be at work constantly realigning us. Make us truly believe that if our fear is placed in you, that we will not fear the things that we currently do. Embolden us. And do it for our good and your glory. We ask you would do this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song.